Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for September 14th, 2022. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and I want to welcome each and every one of you. It is National Cream Filled Donut Day, so I hope that you've picked out something significantly sweet and um, appropriate for the day to get a catch up on all of the news that's been happening this week. And uh, joining me is the man who helps me make the donuts around here, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Great. It's good to be here. Oh, Tom, welcome back from the super cloud. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. We've had a lot of great events happening, but the news doesn't stop just because we're out of the office and we have some stories that came to our attention that we definitely want to let you know about. The first of which is uh, concerning PyTorch. Now, you probably know it as one of the most popular deep learning framework components in the industry today, and uh, it is not only powering Tesla, but thousands of other projects that are looking to leverage AI and machine learning. On Monday, Meta's AI group announced that the project had been transferred to a new PyTorch foundation that is under the auspices of the Linux Foundation. Now, housing the project under a Linux Foundation umbrella uh, should give it the ability to be more neutral because we've already seen a governance board put together that includes the likes of NVIDIA, Google, Amazon, and many more. Um, Stephen, this is a pretty bold move by Meta to basically create a separate vendor-neutral solution for PyTorch. Uh, what's their play here? Oh, I'm not sure what Meta's play here is, but uh, this is a good thing. Um, PyTorch, if you don't really know what it's all about, is a, as you said, an AI framework for machine learning. Um, it's really, really widely used. I mean, frankly, uh, everything is using PyTorch uh, these days. And I think that uh, one of the things that is uh, emerging is that these AI frameworks, just like open source projects before them, these AI frameworks are becoming, well, bigger than the original intent. So PyTorch is, you know, I guess you can think of it as like Kubernetes or something like that. It has become uh, something that's not just a meta project. It's something that's useful to everyone. Uh, and as you, you know, the name implies, PyTorch, by the way, is a uh, Python uh, framework predominantly, but of course, it also has a, a C++ interface. Um, it's used in all sorts of different projects. So, you know, I would say that um, this is one of those things where Meta is doing the right thing. They see the value in this uh, as an open source project instead of as sort of a, a, a baby, a homegrown baby, and they're uh, letting it fly. Uh, I'll just say, too, that I'm really glad to see these things going to the Linux Foundation. Uh, the Foundation has done a nice job with a lot of other open source projects. And uh, the PyTorch Pi uh, will probably uh, have a bright future there. Tom, uh, threat research group Mandiant, which is now part of Google, uh, reported last week that the Albanian government was disrupted by a malware attack. The attack has been attributed to groups backed by Iran uh, and was in response to calls from the Russian government to support ongoing operations and may have targeted former Soviet republics uh, specifically for this reason. The attack happened back in July, but we're only starting to get new data about it today. Uh, what's going on? Is this how cyber attacks are going to be in the future, Tom? I think it's interesting that we're starting to see a lot more of these attacks that are not only targeted at a country, but they're specifically targeted to disrupt the way that a, a country operates. It's not just, oh, hey, I'm going to steal a whole bunch of driving license records and a whole bunch of other things. It's like, hey, what if we just shut down all the DMVs for like a week? Um, could you imagine how big of a pain in the neck that would be for you? 
And uh, before you sit there and say to yourself, oh, well, that can never happen because a lot of these things are state governments. Yeah. Could you imagine shutting down the state of California for a week, two weeks, a month, more? Yeah. Now you're starting to see the potential power of this. And in this particular case, um, there's evidence that's starting to emerge that potentially what this could have been was not just supporting a call to uh, attack former Soviet republics, but also there was a uh, um, uh, summit that was going to be happening uh, about uh, free Iran, uh, you know, potentially a change of regime there or something like that. So it could very well be that this was designed to target that uh, summit and prevent it from happening. But the the bigger picture at play is what happens when we start to see cyber warfare operations that are used as a component of a larger goal, a larger plan? Because if you can shut a country down pretty effectively, the country may not know anything is amiss until they start seeing people, I don't know, rolling over the border with uh, less cyber weapons and more real weapons like tanks and other things. And uh, if you think that that's not a big deal here in the U.S., remember that a lot of our allies border countries that are not exactly friendly to them. And we will be called upon to help out in a lot of those cases, um, something as simple as maybe what happens when the North Koreans shut down South Korea and preemptively invade it. That could be a huge problem. So this is something that's going to bear a lot more research and a lot more investigation, especially given the fact that Mandiant, like we mentioned, is now a part of Google as of this week. Um, you know, they're going to be collecting a lot of this information and kind of um, putting up their reports about it. But the speed that information is moving nowadays, I mean, you know, us finding out about an attack that happened back in July, um, that could already be too late. All right, Stephen. Um, it turns out that SEC fraud is really just a matter of dates. And uh, no one found that out more than our friends over at VMware this week, because they're going to be settling up with the government to the tune of about $8 million dollars. Uh, they misled investors about their financial performance. According to the investigation, VMware leveraged their order backlog process and managed to push some of their licensing revenue into the next quarter by delaying the delivery of said licenses until the first day of the next quarter. Now, this allowed the VMware team to kind of hide the fact that their growth had been slowing down, which we all know is really bad news for people on Wall Street. The SEC said that they managed to find evidence of this going all the way back to fiscal year 2019, and it had been ongoing. Now, Stephen, we know that there's a lot of news about VMware that's been coming out recently, and we just got done with VMware Explorer. But the biggest question that a lot of folks are asking is, what impact could this potentially have on their acquisition? And could this cause other governments to look at it and say, you know what, maybe we don't want you to get acquired until you get all this sorted out? Yeah, I think that's an interesting angle. And, and as a reminder, of course, we're not financial analysts uh, by any means. And uh, frankly, I don't know all that much about the wherewithal of corporate finance. But I will say that I do know a thing or two about how uh, sales teams within companies uh, work and the kind of shenanigans they pull. And frankly, this smells like shenanigans more than it smells like fraud to me. I would say that this is the sort of thing that happens at a lot of companies uh, where they will say, oh, let's book that in the next quarter. Or let's, let's try to you know, push that. And, and some of this stuff is absolutely, completely legal. Uh, for example, every company I know of tries to push or pull revenue across uh, yearly boundaries with, uh, for tax purposes. In other words, uh, maybe in the, la the end of their fourth fiscal quarter, they will uh, start uh, either beating up uh, clients to pay up unpaid invoices in order to make their numbers look better, or they will say, 
hey, you know, uh, why don't we just take a little bit of a vacation for a couple of weeks and um, ask them to pay that invoice next fiscal year? As far as I know, that sort of thing isn't illegal, but uh, actually uh, delivering or kind of faking delivery the way that uh, this sounds is probably not 100% above board. So essentially, we're, we're hearing that there was a sale made and they delivered uh, or they, they delayed delivery uh, until the first day or the first week of the new quarter in order to try to make that quarter look a little bit better at the expense of the previous one. That's probably not so good. Um, but on the other hand, the size of this settlement is not all that big. Uh, VMware is not admitting any kind of wrongdoing here either, which makes me say that uh, nobody involved thinks that this was like some kind of major corporate crime. But of course, that being said, Broadcom did just agree to buy VMware for a very large amount of money, you know, $60 billion. And um, the company did just get in trouble with the SEC over something that could be material to Broadcom's acquisition. So I would say this absolutely could and probably will uh, enter into the uh, final discussions between Broadcom and VMware. Is it going to derail them? Probably not. I'm sure that the Broadcom financial people are going to look at this and say, yep. But at the same time, maybe they'll leverage it to their uh, advantage somehow. I think really the only takeaway for this is basically a warning for other people and uh, other companies. Uh, hey, maybe not so much with the financial end of quarter shenanigans, guys. Let's uh, tone this down a little bit. Tom, uh, HP Inc. has settled a complaint about printer security. Uh, the issue arose in the EU back in 2016 when the printer giant decided to push an update to the HP OfficeJet printer series. Uh, those printers have an embedded security chip, uh, and the update enabled secure communications between the chip and printer cartridges. This means that the printer would only work with genuine HP Inc. products and not third-party equipment. HP will pay a 1.35 million euro uh, to fund to, comp to compensate consumers uh, that were hurt by this. Uh, as a note, of course, this is HP Inc., not HPE, the enterprise brand, a part of HP. Also, full disclaimer, we own an HP printer and it had no part in anything we do because of course it didn't. It's a freaking printer. Tom, what do you have to say about this? The part of this that I found the most fascinating is that HP has effectively been warning us about this for a number of years. How many times have you gone out and bought cartridges, whether they're ink cartridges or toner cartridges or something, to put into a printer and HP like pops up, hey, you need to re you need to certify that these are genuine HP cartridges. Or, you know, if you went and bought like the the ones from the office supply store or what have you, or refilled your own with one of those kits you get like this scary warning message. We can't verify that this is genuine HP stuff. Well, what they did is they basically took the next step, which was there's a chip inside this printer that allows us to basically, you know, if, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, it can sign the communications. It, it can use a, a, a signed certificate, which means the only way that the, the cartridge will be able to respond to that request is if it has the right signature on it. Big problem, right? This is what HP Inc., not HPE, really wants because they don't make money on printers. They make money on printer cartridges. They make money on consumables. They want you to use their stuff. And that's the next phase of it is locking you into that supply. And in this particular case, it was actually a, a Dutch print cartridge reseller that found it 
and kind of brought it up to the German authorities and the German authorities were like, "Mm -mm, no way. So the other thing that I think is fascinating in this particular story is not that we HP Inc. does what HP Inc. is going to do. It's that this chip was already there and they enabled the functionality in it unbeknownst to the users after the fact. You know, that would be like, I don't know, paying for automated driving software on your electric car and then having someone come in and turn it off because you didn't pay enough money for it. I'm not saying that something like that could happen. I'm just saying like something like that could happen. So the the possibilities are endless when you just scroll through the 14 pages of the EULA and click I accept because you want to use the thing only to find out that there's a clause buried in there that allows them to restrict or revoke functionality through future updates. The only solution to this, of course, other than you know badgering the company is to vote with your wallet. Don't buy these solutions that have these embedded security chips that cause these kinds of problems. I don't know if that's a viable solution going forward because I have a feeling that most of HP's printers probably have these chips by now. But in that case, you know, caveat emptor, you need to pay attention to what's going on and maybe you just don't need to install some firmware updates for a while or at least get feedback on what those firmware updates look like before you put them in place. Stephen, this week, Micron broke ground on a massive new memory production facility in Boise, Idaho. DRAM is entering a down cycle, and it's a long-term market, so whatever goes up, it's going to come down eventually, right? At least as far as semiconductor manufacturing is concerned. Micron's U.S. move matches the moves by SK Hynix with their expansion in South Korea, ensuring that these two countries will lead the production of next-generation memory chips. Stephen, what does this say about the future of the IT industry now that we're seeing these expansion plans coming up? Yeah, the the memory industry is uh, remarkably cyclical, and I think that that's the important thing to keep in mind. You know, you'll you'll see periods where memory uh, DRAM prices will go up and up and up, and then you'll see them coming down and down and down. And this affects the major memory producers, Samsung, SK Hynix, Micron. Uh, dramatically because it causes the uh, basically the margin on their products to rise and fall independent really of the production costs. At the same time, just like other semiconductor manufacturing, uh, the cost of entry and the barriers to entry just keep going up. So uh, in RAM, we're uh, using uh, EUV, um, extreme ultraviolet, and uh, DUV, deep ultraviolet technology, to manufacture these chips on a scale that is somewhat different from the sort of nanometer scales that you've heard from companies like Intel or TSMC. Uh, the uh, current you know, state of the art it, for, for memory is, is really quite different and the manufacturing technology is, is really quite different as well. So this is a different semiconductor world, but in order to be part of that world, you have to invest a lot of money. And essentially what this is, and what's happening right now is that within the last month, both SK Hynix and uh, Micron have uh, basically put their money on the table and said, we are you know, anteing up for the next generation of memory chips. And uh, everybody, I think, expects Samsung to do the same. Uh, maybe there will be other entrants. But essentially, if you don't do this, if you don't ante up, if you don't build out a new fab, if you don't procure the next generation equipment, and if you don't do the R&D, uh, then you're not going to be part of that next wave of memory technology and memory build out. 
So essentially, that's what we've got here. We've got uh, two big companies, SK and um, Micron, saying, yep, we're in for the next generation. And uh, their financials are going to look bad for a little while while they weather the storm, the inevitable trough of uh, DRAM pricing. And then the next generation of technology will come out and the fabs will come online and they will rake in the dough again. And what does this mean for the entire industry? Well, quite simply, it means there's going to be a next generation of DRAM and there's going to be another generation beyond that and another and another. In fact, Micron has already showed their technology roadmap out for a decade and they're uh, basically saying, yep, we're here, we're doing this. And um, yeah, that's good for everybody. So really, uh, all I can say is, you know, it's, it's nice that uh, this is happening in the U.S. Um, you know, it's, it's also happening in South Korea. Uh, and I think that this is a good sign for the future of the DRAM market. Yeah, I would agree with you there, Stephen. Um, we had a story that we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at because it involves kind of some policy implications and a wider view of the IT industry. Um, it looks like the White House is looking to restrict chip exports to China again in the near future. Uh, reports say that President Biden is going to release new regulations on semiconductors that are specifically used in artificial intelligence and chip making applications that are going to be bound for China. Now, the policy was outlined in a series of letters earlier this year that said equipment used to produce chips for those specific applications would need to receive a Commerce Department license or they would not be able to be exported. The letters that were sent out to these companies allow rapid action to be taken outside of the normal rulemaking process, but it only applies to companies that have received the letters. Um, the latest round of letters that went out were gone to three manufacturers, but we all know that uh, NVIDIA and AMD have received these letters in the past. It's not a blanket federal policy yet. Stephen, we've talked about this a lot, and we know that there's a lot of heat that's coming in the market with regard to giving a uh, technological advantage to the Chinese in this area. And it looks like, are we about to enter a new trade war over chip making? Yeah, we, we talked about this last week, actually. This was the headline story last week on the rundown, talking about uh, restrictions specifically aimed at the GPU market. So uh, as a reminder, uh, the NVIDIA A100, which is sort of the benchmark GPU chip for AI and machine learning, is the uh, no-go zone for export to China and Russia as of last week. And uh, that would also limit uh, AMD's exports of their next generation uh, GPU, as well as, of course, the really impressive NVIDIA H100, uh, which we just got wind of through the uh, MLPerf results. And uh, as we said last week, uh, that probably isn't the end of it, number one. And number two, it's absolutely possible that there will be export licenses that will be granted in specific use cases so that the Chinese may end up with uh, getting access to these products. But again, uh, my biggest concern here is that, number one, this could spur a, a growth of a parallel uh, world of GPUs and AI accelerators in China that could end up coming back and haunting the West with, you know, basically because they'll build good products that will be competitive in the global market. Uh, number two is that this could expand beyond AI accelerators. And that's exactly what we're hearing now. 
So the rumor is that this uh, restriction on AI accelerators was just the first wave, just the first part, and that the uh, administration in the U.S. is going to expand this way, way, way beyond that. And so we could end up with uh, not just restricting final products, but also restricting the tools that are used to design those products, the tools that are used to manufacture those products, and thus that we could end up with uh, a, a really, really big uh, semiconductor IT trade war on our hands. Another story that came out this week was uh, basically a uh, accusation against Apple that they would be using uh, flash memory from a company called YMTC, which is China's uh, growing flash manufacturer. Uh, Apple absolutely is planning to use YMTC chips by their own admission, but only on handsets for the Chinese market. And um, the uh, U.S. government is basically uh, rattling their sabers and saying, don't use products from that company. I can see uh, both sides of that discussion. But again, I'm going to take the, the, the discussion here with uh, AMD and NVIDIA, with uh, Apple with all these uh, design uh, software and uh, EUV tools and all that and say, we got a big thing brewing here. Uh, China is already one of the world's largest uh, consumers of technology. They're also, of course, one of the world's largest producers of technological products. And if this happens, uh, that this spreads and we have a huge, huge war over uh advanced technological products, it definitely will have global ramifications. It'll cause changes to pricing. It'll cause development and roadmap changes. And as I said, uh, the biggest thing that's probably going to come out of this is that it will spur domestic innovation in China, and we will end up uh, inadvertently, uh, and I say we, the West, will end up inadvertently causing China to rise as a maker of global technology products, or at least that's how I'm seeing it. What do you think, Tom? I think you've hit a lot of valid points. And I think part of what we're seeing is um, in previous years, we've just seen outright bans. Like, you know, you cannot have your equipment in our country at all. Just And we saw that with Huawei and ZTE, just you know, nothing at all. And that didn't really affect things. Like, okay, great. You know, we, we it's actually going to end up costing us billions of dollars to get rid of all of that equipment, as we've covered here on the rundown many times. But I think that this is a more subtle approach by saying you are going to need to have a license in order to be able to export this. But what we're effectively saying when we do that is we'll let you send it for an agreement on specific conditions, but also certain amounts to be negotiated. And I think that that's wrapping it up in that little bow of saying, you know, mother may I gives us leverage, us being the U.S. government and, and the Western governments in, as a whole, to say, you know, we'll send you this equipment, but you're not allowed to reverse engineer it. Or we'll send you this equipment on a lease for a certain number of years. But, you know, like if there's something that comes out of this that looks suspiciously similar, like, you know, we reserve the right to, you know, restrict things. Essentially, what they're doing is they're putting conditions on this, because as everybody who watches the rundown knows, that whenever you open an, a branch of a company inside of the People's Republic of China, you're actually required to open a subsidiary that is 51% owned by a Chinese company by their own rules. 
And uh, most of the people who open those subsidiaries are very well connected with the government, uh, to put it mildly. But that, that gives them the ability to kind of go in and, and, and look at how the, the technology is built and, and kind of, like you said, develop their own ways of doing it or develop ways to create suspiciously similar versions of it uh, for consumption, even if it's just inside of China, which reduces the overall market for that company. But again, the Chinese economy is so enormous right now that you can't not be there. So I think that this is the U.S. government's way of creating a situation where companies can still do business with a little bit of protection. But it also forces the Chinese government's hand in the whole matter because now they have to kind of play by what could be considered uh, Marcus of Queensbury rules. Like we all agree on this. Like a lot of other companies have these kinds of agreements set up in place through you know different governments. And now China has to come to the table to do that. Will they? Well, your your points are very valid. If they don't want to play or if they feel like the uh, agreements are too restrictive, then yeah, they really will take their ball and go home. But the question becomes, without the head start of these chip making facilities, of this chip making equipment and, and intellectual property, can they ramp their production facilities fast enough to catch up to where we are? I mean, we've already seen a lot of issues with companies that are trying to be sold off like ARM and and what could happen there. And so I don't think that China, if they take their ball and go home, will be able to go out onto the market and then just buy a company to do this. I think that there's going to be a lot of regulatory issues around it, and it could cause them to actually fall behind um, unless there's a massive amount of capital that's being poured in to these industries to kind of jump back to the top of the heap. But the funny thing about capital is that it's not infinite. Um, eventually you hit a point of diminishing returns where no more money being invested into this project will make it go any faster or be any better or be any more competitive. And then that's where the rubber meets the Belt and Road Initiative. Effectively, um, there's only so much growth that you can do before you actually have to sell things. And if nobody wants to buy them or are restricted from buying them for one reason or another, there's not a whole lot you can do. So it, I think that we do have a little bit of a storm coming. I'm very curious to see what happens when that occurs, but I honestly don't know how that could pan out for everybody. All right, Stephen, we've got another story that I think might be interesting to some of the uh, listeners of the rundown out here. Uh, ML Commons has released a latest wave of machine learning training and inferencing benchmarks, and NVIDIA's next generation H100 really aced the results. It delivered up to four and a half times the performance of the leading NVIDIA A100, so they managed to best themselves again. But there are some other gems in these results if you dig into them. A surprisingly strong showing for Byron Technologies BR104 and good enough performance from Intel Sapphire Rapid Xeon to eliminate the market for low-performing inferencing hardware. Steven, you are the man who is all things AI around here. What do the ML Perf results tell us? Yeah, this is a, an interesting and developing story. So this was just released, uh, and I'm really pouring through the data now. I, I've got to say, uh, congratulations, NVIDIA, on your really impressive H100 performance. Now, H100 looked good. The Hopper series uh, really looked good when they announced it. Um, but of course, uh, what matters is where the rubber meets the road. How does it work in the real world? 
And that's one of the coolest things about MLPerf. So MLPerf, if you're not aware of it, is actually not a benchmark. It is a wide set of benchmarks that are very, very real world optimized. Our good friend, uh, David Cantor and company over there at ML Commons are really focused on trying to suss out, not just like who's the biggest and the baddest, but really which product is should you use in your situation for your models, for your applications, and how would you know whether it's worthwhile investigating this or that product? And not only that, but uh, the, the, the benchmark is really sensitive to how machine learning and AI is actually applied. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing here is that there's kind of uh, two aspects of machine learning uh, that are rapidly emerging, training and inferencing. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, training are those big, big jobs where uh, you do a lot of number crunching uh, kind of in the background once to make sure that the model is ready to go and to develop the model. And then inferencing is basically using that technology on a regular basis. So on the training side, well, it's NVIDIA's world. NVIDIA really killed it. They already ruled the training roost. Uh, with the Hopper series, uh, they're doing even more. They are delivering uh, easily the best performance across every different model, uh, pretty much. I think there was one maybe that, uh, that, that didn't work well, but uh, again, I'm still working through these results. Still, um, it was a very, very strong showing, and uh, you know, congratulations, NVIDIA, on a very successful delivery of a next-generation product. Now, another thing, though, that we see is uh, a very, as you said, a strong showing for uh, Biren Technologies BR104, which is um, a product from China that was developed independently, natively, as sort of a native competitor to NVIDIA. And guess what? Uh, even though this is pretty much their first generation product, it really works well. Um, it's delivering performance that is not as high as the NVIDIA performance, but uh, in some cases, it actually is competitive with the H100 um, in terms of uh, per accelerator performance on image classification, for example. And overall, it shows that China has a valid competitor for NVIDIA's uh, forbidden chips which I guess goes to what we've been talking about here on the rundown with the uh, blockade of China for, for, with uh, ML hardware. Now, another thing that's worth looking at is the, uh, the surprisingly strong performance of Sapphire Rapid, Rapids, uh, Intel's uh, next generation Xeon uh, platform. Um, it, it, what we're seeing here is that Xeon scalable fourth generation processors can run uh, ML workloads fast enough, and I'm talking about inferencing here, fast enough that it really doesn't make much sense to go out and buy a separate inferencing hardware in many cases, um, because frankly, you can just run it on the CPU. And this to me is another huge takeaway from these results. And it really shows what's happening in this world. Um, if you look at today's uh, CPUs, like the Sapphire Rapids uh, Xeon, uh, like the Apple uh, chips that you find in your, in your Mac and in your phone, um, and of course, uh, like AMD's next generation CPUs and uh, a lot of the other ARM and RISC-V CPUs, they're incorporating machine learning accelerators for inferencing needs that are really fine 
good enough. And, and once you get good enough on the inferencing side, well, you don't need anything more than that. And so from a data center perspective, Intel's once dubious claim that you didn't need to buy uh, GPU hardware in order to run uh, ML, uh, well, that claim is starting to sound true. And I think that that claim is going to sound true coming from others as well uh, very soon. And frankly, it's going to really change the face of the uh, AI inferencing market. So to me, those are the big takeaways so far, but I can't wait to dive in more. And uh, I really appreciate ML Commons uh, for including me uh, once again in the uh, ML Perf briefings. All right. Well, that'll just about wrap it up for our news stories, but we do have a couple of exciting things coming up next week that are involving you, Stephen. So why don't you let everybody know what you've got ahead? Well, I am very excited to be headed back to California for Tech Field Day next week. Uh, Kicking things off on Tuesday, September 20th, we've got a Cloud Field Day exclusive event with NetApp focused on delivering the multi-cloud. I don't know, is it the super cloud, the meta cloud, the hyper cloud? We'll call it the multi-cloud. And um, I'm pretty uh, thrilled to have a great, great group of delegates in person there in in California for that. And if you want to join us in person, uh, NetApp is inviting some people in. Just go to the Tech Field Day website and and learn more. Uh, Then uh, Wednesday through Friday next week, uh, the 21st through the 23rd, is Cloud Field Day 15, which uh, also has a great, great lineup of companies and delegates. And uh, once again, please do check out the Tech Field Day website for more information about that. But basically, if you're in the cloud space, uh, Tuesday through Friday next week, there's going to be a ton of streaming content. Absolutely. And if you want to learn more about all of the things that we do at Tech Field Day, of course, head over to techfieldday.com. If you would like to see the latest episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown, you can head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video. We should have a new episode out to you every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern time with all of the great news that we can find during the week. You can also subscribe to us in your favorite podcasting application of choice. Uh, Just look for the Gestalt IT Rundown. If you have any stories that you'd like us to include in the rundown, please make sure you tweet at us. Uh, We're at Gestalt IT on Twitter. Use the hashtag rundown and we should catch that and add it to our list. Um, But we should be back next week. Actually, I won't be. Um, I'm going to be out as well. So um, you should have a very interesting show. Uh, We'll make sure that there's lots of great news to follow along with. Um, But we look forward to our next opportunity to give you an update on all the cool things that are going on in the IT space. And we hope that you have a great week. We will see you soon.